0: Welcome to A Younger Voice, your essential youth guide to politics. I'm your host, Benjamin Glover. Today, a very special guest will be joining us to discuss his presidential bid and his message for young Americans. Dubbed the most influential libertarian in America by Rolling Stone, he describes himself as armed and gay. Here's that interview now. I'm here with a very special guest, libertarian candidate for president, Chase Oliver. He's a 37-year-old activist from Atlanta, and he's the first third-party candidate in history to qualify for the Iowa Soapbox. Thanks for coming on, Chase.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So usually when we start, we uh, like to give our candidates a little bit of an opportunity to share their stump speech, a little bit of their background.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, my name is Chase Aller. Uh, I regret to inform you I'm now a 38-year-old activist that recently changed. But uh, I'm a 38-year-old candidate for president from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and my reason for running is simple. I do believe we need to have a better option on the ballot than what the two-party system currently gives us, and as a libertarian, I want to bring a bold message uh, rooted in individual liberty and the rights of all people uh, to not be abused and used by the uh, overly large and oppressive government that we have today. And so I want to give voters a choice they can feel good about. I'm not just the anti-Donald Trump or the anti-Joe Biden. I am the pro-make-your-own-choices candidate. And so to that end, uh, I seek to uh, 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 fight for a lot of policy issues uh, rooted in the American uh, voters' ability to control their own destiny, control their own prosperity. Uh, This is why I support balancing the budget so that we can get our deficits and debt under control so we can have an economy in the long run that works For uh, younger workers who are just entering the workforce, I want to make sure my nephews and nieces have an economy that works for them in the long run. Uh, It's why I support free and open immigration, because I think we need to uh, get the tens of millions of people who are currently living here without documentation out of the shadows, uh, and also make it easier for those who want to come here and work and put down their roots to be able to do so. And when we take our eye off of the ball... Of the uh, peaceful people who want to just come here and work, we can actually place our focus of law enforcement on those who seek to use crimes of human exploitation via human trafficking at the border. Uh, I think that's a much better policy for us to be taking with regards to immigration. And then, of course, the last issue that is extremely near and dear to my heart uh, is criminal justice reform. Uh, it's a uh, it's an area where the government is kind of at an advantage at every single level from your first interaction with the police all the way through uh, imprisonment and post-release. And so that's an area where we need to reform, starting with police, uh, by ending qualified immunity, requiring uh, liability insurance for all police. And then we can go through a whole series of reforms, such as uh, ending mandatory minimums, ending the death penalty, uh, and ending victimless crimes like the drug war. And so there are lots of areas through criminal justice where we need to fix uh, major issues that I think a majority of Americans can see the need for these issues. We just need a leader in place who's willing to get out there and do the work and not do what the two-party system will provide you, which is political pro-wrestling. It is two people in a ring simulating combat for the purposes of getting you excited to take advantage of you, your money, and your vote. And the truth is, is I am sick and tired of this uh, kind of political pro-wrestling. I want to actually get work done with anybody who's willing to get the work done across single-issue coalitions. And I want to be somebody again, candidates can vote uh, feel good for voting for, and that particularly candidates in Generation Z can see someone worth placing their vote behind, because they will be the largest block of voters in 15 years, and I think it's time we give them options outside of the two-party system.
0: Absolutely. That's a great segue, actually, to my first question here, which would be, if elected, you would take office as the youngest president in history. Uh, What is your vote? What is your message to your fellow young voices who are perhaps struggling with the duopoly that we're in right now?
1: Well, I my my message to millennials and to Gen Z voters uh, is pretty simple. You guys know that uh, you shouldn't be left with just one or two choices on the ballot. And oftentimes that's what we have thanks to our broken two party system. And the only way to fix that is to demand better ways to vote and more access for more parties. And that includes things like ranked choice voting and uh, ballot access reforms. But who's going to give that to you? Only the two-party system, right? Because they're the people in power. And so the only way you're going to make your voice heard to get these reforms in place so that you have more options, more choices, and more voices on your ballot is to support outside of the duopoly and to make it heard for them. Because that's the truth. The more votes you cost them by going outside the two-party system, the more likely they are to give us something like ranked choice voting. Uh, And my message to younger voters is simple. My generation is the generation that spent the last 22 years fighting the war on terror. My generation is the generation that saw our economy completely fall out from underneath us in 2008, right when we were getting started. And I don't want to see that again for the next generation. And it's my generation that right now is trying to raise families all over the country with runaway inflation and Gen Z voters. Our kids who are trying, I say, say kids, but our younger voters rather, who are uh, really interested in, you know, making sure that there's an economy that's ready for them because they're in school right now and they're about to leave and join the workforce. And they want to make sure that there's not massive unemployment or the high cost of living that makes just, uh, you know, the ability for them to get out there and start their prosperity and start their lives and their American dream unattainable right now. And so there's a lot of issues we can address that speak particularly to younger voters. But one thing that I can promise them is I'm not going to be one that's going to continue the policy of the warfare state that we've had for the last 23 years. You never have to worry about a draft with me. Uh, and I'm somebody who is looking realistically at ways to improve uh, our economy. So that way, while y'all are getting your first jobs and getting right you know right started in this process, uh, you're not being hampered and handicapped thanks to an overarching and overly expensive government that's just deficit spending like it's, like it's out of control.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, a disproportionate number of these younger voters are progressive compared to the rest of the general population. And you've set yourself apart from some other libertarians and libertarian candidates as someone who is pro-choice and someone who is pro-LGBTQ rights. Mm -hmm. How do you believe you want to shake the traditional stereotype of a libertarian as somebody who's ultra-conservative?
1: Well, you know, I think we need to look back at our history, really. From the very beginning uh, of our founding of our party in 1971, we supported the right of same-sex couples to marry, for LGBT people to be involved in the military and have adoption rights, and really in any interaction with government saying that they should be on an equal playing field with anybody else – uh, and we have always supported the right of self-expression to express yourself however you like, so long as you're not harming anybody. And I believe that certainly uh, extends itself even into gender expression, which is why I believe uh, the LGBTQ population should be naturally libertarian. Why, I'm a, why I myself am a gay libertarian is because uh, I was literally talked into joining the party. I introduced the party at Atlanta Pride in 2010 because the Libertarian Party of Georgia was the only political party at the time. That was advertising there. So I think we've actually really been ahead of the curve uh, with regards to being very socially progressive. In fact, um, you know, our first nominee for president, while not out uh, you know, outwardly gay, it was known amongst his friends and family that he was. Uh the times were a little different in 1971, pre-pre-Harvey Milk. Uh, but you know, I think today it's, you know, perfectly acceptable for us to have an LGBTQ libertarian leading the charge. Uh, and with regards to being pro-choice, you know. Um, you know there are pro-life libertarians, uh, there are pro-choice libertarians, but ultimately I think uh, it rests in the realm of bodily autonomy. Your body is your body, and uh, even with regards to pregnancy, those medical decisions are yours. And I recognize that there is, uh, you know, there there is true and considerate uh, objection to abortion out there, and to that end, I'm somebody who supports the Hyde Amendment. I don't think federal tax dollars should be going to fund abortion. While I believe that abortion should be legal. I also think it should be safe and uh, rare. And the way to make it more rare is to pass other things like making birth control over the counter so that contraception is more easily available to educate our kids about the consequences of sex and the fact that pregnancy can become a part of that. Uh, That has to be done on a more individual basis that can't really be pushed by government. Uh, But we can also do things like reducing the red tape around adoption that makes it so expensive and so costly and make that more of a realistic option for those who may become pregnant who don't want to be able to uh to, who don't want to become a parent for that child let's give them a better option for adoption by making that easier there's lots of things we can do to reduce the instance of abortion without taking that autonomy away from women all over the country and so i would say as a libertarian you know if you do not support abortion rights don't have an abortion uh but i do believe that, that should be an option that's available up to the point of viability uh, which is the standard that was set by roe and casey Uh, you know, I think that's what we need to be seeing, you know, going forward. And I think if you ask millennial and Gen Z women, it's the first question that is always asked of me when I bring up that I'm running for president is what is my opinion on abortion? And when I say I'm pro-choice, you can literally see the tension leave their body and say, okay, I can continue talking to you. Mm. Uh, This is the state right now uh, of uh, abortion rights in this country, a majority of people support it. And I think that's what we need to go with. Um, And as far as you know you can see the flag right behind me uh lgbtq rights extend through every part of my philosophy uh, because i believe i have the right to be who i am and as long as i'm not hurting anybody i should be able to live my life and that should be able to be extended to anybody whether they be gay or straight cis or trans uh i think that's something that should be respected
0: hmm. so um uh moving on a little bit to is- issues of policy uh Your plan to end the student debt crisis is, uh, in my opinion, the most thought out plan of any of the libertarian candidates. And I I just want to give you an opportunity to share and expand on it a little bit on the podcast, because it's very interesting to me.
1: Well, thank you for uh, providing me the opportunity. And uh, the reason why I put this plan together so detailed is because uh, I wanted to make sure I'm speaking to those younger voters who are currently in school or who are just out of school and now going through their own student debt crisis that we see across the country. Uh, You know, 1.7 of the $1.8 trillion of student loan debt is currently backed by the federal government. A lot of that happened in 2008. They took over a lot of the student loan debt and they've continued to do so. Uh, And what this has done is artificially inflated the price of higher education, Uh, because when the school knows that there's going to be government backed loans for just about anything, uh, they don't really competitively market themselves and seek to lower prices. Uh, And so what we now have is we now have uh, millions of people all across the country who are suffering from. The ability to pay down their student loans, many are only able to pay just the interest alone on the uh, on and not really being paid down the principal. And so my solution to this is simple instead of a loan forgiveness program, I would ask Congress make all currently held student loans that are currently backed by uh, the federal government to become interest free as of today. If we do that those kids who are still paying down their interest loans, uh, by the interest rate only, they are actually now paying down the principal. And we're able to remove these loans off of the federal government balance sheet. And the most important thing that we're going to do is not replace them with more loans that get put back on the federal balance sheet. We need to remove as much as possible and get ourselves to where we have actually a market-based system that is providing the loans for schools. Because then you actually have to go to a bank and you have to provide the worth of your diploma. You have to say, okay, I'm going to be an engineer. I need this much money to go to school. And a school will go, okay, an engineer is a a very sought-after profession. We believe we're going to make our money back, so we'll give you the loan. Mm-hmm. But if you go for, say, a major that's not going to earn you a lot of money, they're going to say, well, this is the only amount of money we're going to provide you. And what that will have schools doing is actually pricing their diplomas and pricing uh, the cost of higher education within the you know, realm of like realistic pricing and bringing free market principles back to school. So you're going to lower tuition over time. The reason why this is also important to do it this way is it doesn't happen all at once. These loans will start to come off the federal balance sheet over time. And as it happens, it allows the market to transition itself away from a market that has been totally backed by the federal government uh, for a generation now and push it back towards more free market principles. This lowers the cost of tuition. This allows people to pay down their loan and get out from underneath the interest uh, the interest payment cycle that too many have been stuck in. And it puts a market incentive to lower the cost of higher education over the long term. I think this is a realistic proposal that Congress would actually pass if it got in front of them, even without a libertarian president. I think if a legislator put this forward, you can get bipartisan uh, support behind it today. And I think it's something that would provide loan relief for millions and millions of Americans. And you make it deficit neutral by making cuts to the Pentagon, by making cuts to defense spending, that we have huge amounts of bloat and abuse. So you don't have to add to the deficit to do this.
0: Hmm. So... I want to talk about something very heavy right now, and and it's it's one of the most important and pressing issues for younger voices. It's firearms. It's in the United States, the number one cause of death for people under 18 is firearms. Just this year, 35,000 people have died in the United States of firearms, and there has been 550 mass shootings. How would you, as president, work to lower this these horrifying number of gun deaths?
1: And I appreciate the question. And as a pro Second Amendment candidate, it's a question that I'm probably going to get asked from uh, certainly progressive voters all over the country and a lot of young people as well. I support your right to defend yourself. Um, I always have. And that comes from, you know, my realistic life uh, uh experience of i used to work in a bar and i used to have to leave the bar at two in the morning with hundreds of dollars worth of tips in my pocket and have to walk five blocks to get back to my car to drive home uh in downtown atlanta and i can tell you right now i felt a lot safer uh having a snub nosed revolver in my pocket as i made that walk because i know friends who had been robbed uh and been assaulted uh doing the exact same thing i had done every night now When you talk about these mass shootings, which is what a lot of the news is looking at, uh, you're looking at, you know, first off, you're looking at shootings that take place with a rifle, which is less than 3% of all gun violence in this country. And so I think just outlawing rifles is not going to stop gun violence in this country. We have to look at what's going to stop the mass violence that we see. Uh, And it's that's a relatively new phenomenon that kind of started in my childhood with Columbine was like the first majorly nationwide known kind of mass shooting of this level that kind of continued on through uh what we see today and we have to look at the differences uh and what was the world like before then and after that like my uh, my mom loves to remind me that when she was in high school they actually had a shooting club so they had students who would come with bagged rifles on their arm they would put them in their locker they would go to school and then after school they would go to the football field and they would shoot target shooting now was there ever a mass shooting was there ever any shooting incident at my mom's school no, there wasn't. And guns have always been a part of our culture. We need to examine what the real X factor is. And there's two things that I think that really need to be examined. First off is the dehumanization that has occurred since the rise of social media. The fact that people, young and old, all people, can go in front of a social media platform, become a faceless avatar, and spout really dehumanizing and hateful rhetoric that you would never say to people in their in their everyday lives, you would never say this in a an actual conversation in the public, but because you're able to be anonymous, because you're behind a screen, you all of a sudden be able to feel the the ability to dehumanize and de-empathize one another. And I think that has led to a lot of what we see with these hateful shootings, particularly shootings involving white supremacists and other violence. These people are kind of poisoned by their ideology, and they're not able to be really checked in real time because, frankly, again, they're a faceless avatar. The other X factor is A lot of these mass shootings take place with people who are on highly, uh, you know, uh, with with psychotropic drugs through mental health issues. And I think we need to maybe re-examine the application of those medications as opposed to other medical therapies and talk therapy that might be providing better mental health outcomes than what we're seeing by over medicating our population. Uh, But lastly, uh, I want to say this to young people who understand that gun violence is a real issue. Um, I empathize. And I understand the real fear that you go through, but the truth is, is statistically speaking, most of you are going to be just fine. Uh, and I urge people who do want to own a firearm to be well educated in how to handle those firearms. Uh, not only am I somebody who goes to the gun range regularly to, uh, you know, to to use my firearm correctly, uh, to be well trained in case the worst is to happen, I'm also stop the bleed certified. Uh, I've learned how to be a, become a good first responder. And so if you don't want to be a gun owner, which I don't encourage everybody to be one, I do encourage you to become a first responder out there. Because in case the worst does happen, uh, being a ready person who has a who has the ability and the skill to help those in need is going to go a very long way. I don't think there's gun restrictions that are going to lead to the end of violence. There's going to be violence all of the time. Uh, and I don't think there's a constitutional way to disarm people regardless. You would have to change the constitution. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, What I do think we need to do is reexamine, you know, the everyday empathy we have for each other. And, uh, you know, um, I will say, you know, much of what we're seeing um, is uh, a result of, again, the dehumanizing of one another. So I don't have the, I don't have a policy solution for violence. Uh, All I can say is is that it's, it's not going to be rooted in disarming people. Uh, I think if you look at the violent crime statistics in some of Western Europe, which does have a more disarmed in terms of firearms population, you still see plenty of violent crime. You still see plenty of stabbings, plenty of violence. Uh, it just doesn't happen with a firearm. So it's it's more about the the tool than the application of violence there.
0: Hmm. All right. Um, moving on to the next issue, uh, you've expressed your support for reforming the immigration system. Um This is, you know, this is another piece that was interesting to me as, you know, you being a libertarian candidate, I want, I'm curious if you could expand on this a little bit within the context of you being a libertarian.
1: Yeah, so um, libertarians generally believe in the free movement of people and their property and their capital. And that should include uh, labor, which is what you, uh, you know, your labor is part of your capital. It's part of your value. And if you're a worker, you should be able to cross boundaries to be able to go work wherever you need to be working there, wherever their jobs are, the market should dictate that you as labor should be able to go there and fill those jobs. That should not be exclusive to just Americans. We should allow people to come here and work who want to come here and work. And frankly, there are already tens of millions of people who are doing that. But right now they're doing so in the shadows and so it's very easy to exploit uh undocumented immigrants because let's say you know you underpay them for your work or you don't pay them the overtime they deserve or or you you know you you make them work in conditions that are very very dangerous or exploitive. well they can't just like go to their local authority and say something about that because they fear deportation uh and that and that can extend across a whole host of things like even like domestic violence like there's a there, are, I'm sure there are immigrant domestic violence victims who can't go to the shelter with them and their children for fear of being deported because if they're found out to be immigrants. And so we have to take these people out of the shadows. Uh, and the way to do that is to create an Ellis Island-style immigration system that basically says if you're coming here to work and you're not, you know, you're not carrying an extremely dangerous communicable disease, uh, or you're not wanted for a crime that requires extradition, uh, you should be allowed to come here and work. Or claim asylum if you're running, if you're fleeing uh, real persecution out there. Uh, And so I think we need to make those levers easier for people to access. You should be able to just come right through a port of entry. And if you're not harming anybody, you should be able to come here and work. And again, that allows us to put the enforcement eyeballs on real human exploitation via human trafficking. Children and, and, and adults who are being brought over here for labor or sexual exploitation, those people deserve to have law enforcement be able to fight for them and fight. Uh, to prevent those abuses from coming into the United States. And so when we take our eye away from the vast majority, like, you know, the proverbial 99%, right, of uh, immigrants who just want to come here and work, we can really place our hyper focus on those who are really coming here to do harm. Uh, And, you know, I, I think that that's the humane thing to do. But I also think in regard to free market principles that are just in line with the Libertarian Party, I think that needs to be the policy of our immigration system is just uh, allow people who want to come here to work to do so. It's how my forefathers came here. It's how most people's uh, ancestry came to be here in the United States. Uh, They came here from somewhere else. We should not pull that ladder up. And in fact, if you want to look at the economic output, uh, you know, immigrants and the children of immigrants actually start more small businesses than the, uh, the native-born and the children of native-born Americans. And so if you really want to look, that's going to be the economic engine and then going you know forward in the 21st century, we really need to look to the immigrant workforce that's going to bring diversity, strength, and innovation to our nation. Uh, it's not a detriment. Immigrants are a net positive, not a net negative. Uh, even with regards to use of social welfare and other things, uh, they do so less than native-born Americans. So like the, the idea that immigrants are somehow a drag on an economy or a bad thing is either rooted in ignorance or plain old xenophobia. And it's two mm. things that I reject as a libertarian.
0: Hmm. So uh, let's assume that you're nominated at the Libertarian Convention, which I believe is in D.C. this year or next year. Yep.
1: D.C. Yeah. in May. Yep.
0: Yep. Uh, and you're elected in November. What would be your main priority for your first hundred days?
1: Yeah, so, uh, well, let's just go through kind of the first day, right? Uh, Upon taking office, you know, I'll say my oath and I get to go speak to the American people. The first thing that I'm going to do is give out four very needed pardons. Uh, That's going to be to uh, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, Ross Ulbricht, and Leonard Peltier. Uh, These are four people who have been for too long, uh, either been whistleblowers who have been persecuted or been people who have been in jail for a very long time. Uh, far longer than any crime they may have committed uh, warrants certainly. Uh, And these are people who deserve to be free. So the first thing I'm going to do is signal that I'm going to pardon them along with any federal prisoners who are currently residing for victimless crimes, uh, because we have to lead by example. And that's something that a president can do on day one, on hour one, to actually start the process of uh, being a more free and libertarian and classically liberal nation. Uh, The next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask that the Joint Chiefs of Staff and my prospective uh, Secretary of Defense uh, meet me in the Oval Office and I'm going to tell uh, our military that the time of the military industrial complex is over. The time of us uh, continuing to fund warfare with zero uh, uh, with zero oversight and a blank check is over. And they need to reduce the size scope of their departments immediately. Uh, that we are going to be closing bases, that we are going to be removing our militaristic footprint. Uh, from every continent that is not North America over time, because uh, it is time for us to lead with uh, diplomacy and peace and not at the barrel of a gun or using drone bombs. Uh, The next uh, step I'm going to take is to start asking that Congress submit me a budget that is balanced and let them know that if I'm not given a balanced budget, I will veto it because I will not be putting my name on any new deficit spending uh, in in this country, because we cannot continue out of the debt. If they want to do that, they can override my veto and pass a budget without my signature. But I will use everything I can, uh, every lever that I can to get a balanced budget in place. Um, and lastly, uh, I will begin to form working groups and asking that my vice president work with these working groups in the House and Senate on drafting legislation that's revolving around immigration and criminal justice uh, to get those two big packages hopefully done in the first hundred days. Uh, And last but not least, uh, I will uh, begin the process of, of course, staffing up my government, finding uh, libertarian and classically liberal voices to help staff each and every department to reduce the oversight, uh, the the waste, fraud and abuse that we see in our government. And I'm going to ask that each department head uh, submit me a reduced budget every single year uh, until we can get ourselves into fiscal control and fiscal sanity. So the first thing that's going to go is redundancies. Uh, and uh, the waste, fraud, and abuse that we see throughout the system. I'm going to put some pretty darn good accountants in place in each department to make sure that we find each and every area where we can cut without reducing services, and then we can start the process of reducing the administrative state overall. Uh, that's mm-hmm. going to probably take more than 100 days, but I think I covered at least what I'm going to be busy with for the first 100 days if I were elected.
0: Sounds like a busy first day.
1: Oh, uh, well, yeah, first day and then on to the first 100, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, um Moving on to uh, policy again, Um, about half of Americans have reported that they find paying medical bills very difficult, considering that in the United States, three days in the hospital could set you back an average of $30,000. What is your plan to alleviate these skyrocketing costs for Americans?
1: Well, we have to examine why the costs are so high. And much of that has to do with the way our uh, insurance system works in this country. And the fact that you know uh, employment is kind of tied to our healthcare system is a little crazy. Most places don't have it like that. Uh, and you know, while I'm not one to support socialized medicine, I'm not one who supports a single payer system. I do think there are ways we can absolutely reduce the cost across the board. Uh, one of the things I push for is uh, direct primary care. It is an option that should be available to far more consumers across the spectrum, uh, that I wish more people knew about it, which is basically it's a boutique plan where you pay your doctor's office a, a set amount. Um, usually it's, uh, you know, I think between 75 and $125 a month. And with that, you can go see this doctor, speak to them, email them, uh, do text, you know, uh, virtual visits like we're doing on Zoom right now, and be able to get most of your healthcare coverage taken care of. And then for those services that you do need, say you need a blood test or an X ray. You just pay out of pocket a base price. You're not going through the insurance model, which allows them to provide the service at a much lower rate uh, because their overhead is lower. They're not having half of their staff being doing insurance billing all day. Uh, The other thing that I think is, is to look at ways we can have free market alternatives to medicine so much of what we have is the cost of medication in this country. And if you look at just like Mark Cuban's cost plus drug website, which operates outside of the traditional insurance marketplace, you see cancer drugs that cost you thousands and thousands of dollars a month under insurance plans uh, because they jack up the price that the middleman and in the insurance company can make theirs. But if you buy it through his website directly without insurance, it's you know under $100 a month. Why is that? Well, it's because the, it's kind of a racket, the way big pharma works within the insurance industry. And I think we can uh, educate the public and decouple those things. And lastly, there's a lot of areas where government needs, needs to get out of the way. Insulin is a great example. Uh, when I ran for U.S. Senate, my opponent touted that he was going to pass this uh, cap on the end cost for insulin at $25 per user for Medicaid patients. Well, the truth is, is that with that uh, cost, you know, uh, it, it gets passed on anyways to the consumer. It's not it's not like a lowering the cost it just lowers the end price. The way you lower the cost of insulin is you quit patent evergreening so that competition can enter the marketplace. You allow for the purchase of insulin across national borders, so there can be a marketplace incentive to lower the cost of drugs here in the United States. And uh, you remove the red tape from the FDA. Uh, Really, ideally you would remove the FDA over a long period of time, but you wanna remove at least the red tape towards getting new and alternative drugs in the marketplace. Uh, The FDA and the government have really hogtied the innovative drug marketplace and kept a lot of things artificially high and so, I would look to see what levers we can do without passing some sort of single payer, centrally planned healthcare system that will lead to shortages. And trust me, I have friends in Canada and the UK that tell me uh, there are certainly long lines and long waits for a lot of their stuff that we would consider pretty basic healthcare in the United States. Uh, and so, uh, instead of leaning in that direction, I think we should lean in the direction of innovation in the marketplace and really producing incentives that lower the cost overall for the consumer and uh, quit allowing pharma uh, big pharma and the insurance companies to really control that marketplace via our government, because that's what they do mm-hmm. right now. Uh, yeah. They basically have lobbied and, and paid for our legislatures. Absolutely.
0: So um, one of your campaign points is uh, ending wars and supporting peace. Can you expand this position in the context of current events internationally?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in the age of the war on terror, and I've seen that a heavy hand, a military hand in the United States, particularly in the Middle East, is not a very helpful one. Uh, and so let's look at that through the lens of what we have today uh, with Israel and Palestine. I think there can be nothing worse than putting United States troops uh, in Israel today. I think that would just signal a massive escalation of force. And it would signal to the international community that uh, the United States is once again trying to uh, you know, uh, play peacemaker in the Middle East, and it just does not work. What we have to be examining here is, A, we have to be praying for peace, obviously. We have to be feeling bad for both sides, that people are in debt on both sides here. And while Mm -hmm. we side with Israel's right to defend themselves, clearly from these barbaric attacks from Hamas, we also have to be a good ally to Israel and let them know that their response right now is actually going to create more blowback, that there are thousands of uh, people dead, many of them children in, uh, in Gaza right now. And there has to be a better way for us to be able to root out Hamas and for Israel to root out Hamas, rather, Uh, than what they're doing right now. And what we Mm. cannot do is kind of force those terms on the Palestinians, on the Israelis, because when we do, it'll be seen as the United States putting a thumb on the scale in the peace process, and it never works out. But really what we need to be doing is pulling ourselves back from military solutions, both in Syria and in, in Israel and Palestine and Ukraine. We need to be pulling ourselves away from the military solutions here and be pushing humanitarian solutions. Mm-hmm. Instead of us pushing a military solution in Ukraine, which I believe our international partners in Europe can be handling the military side of things from here on out. We've we've been funding the military side for quite a long time, including NATO for a generation. Let's fund the humanitarian side. Let's say that any Ukrainian who wants to get out of Ukraine can come to the United States as a refugee. Let's say that any member of the uh, Russian military is being conscripted to fight this fight, many of whom don't want to be there. If you're in Ukraine and you're in the Russian military, let's say you can abandon your post, come to us, give up, and you'll get asylum in the United States. You can be a refugee in the United States as well. Watch that reduce the Russian morale far more than more military uh, intervention will. I say, yeah. I think there are real solutions we can take.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's all the uh, that's all the questions I have for now. I'm going to move on to the lightning round. I just have a couple questions, uh, mm-hmm. short questions, short answers um so who's your favorite politician past or present
1: Ooh, favorite politician past president i like javier malay in argentina he's about to get elected president of argentina he'll be an actual libertarian anarcho-capitalist who is elected uh to lead a nation i respect him a lot and uh you know while i don't like his uh kid running against him you know i do have a respect for rfk uh particularly for his statements after martin luther king was murdered
0: Yeah, I was about to say that's an interesting choice. Um, So what final question here, favorite thing about America?
1: Favorite thing about America is the broad diversity that brings the melting pot that we are, the fact that every single culture from around the world can come find a place here in the United States and be a part of the broad patchwork quilt. I love that about America. I love that there is uh, boundless options, that you can be in the middle of nowhere in kansas and still find great vietnamese food right like i love the fact that there's that option that we have such great diversity in our nation and that's what i think makes us super strong and it's our values of freedom that i think reinforce those and it's why i'm running as a libertarian because i want to have that patchwork quilt here in this country
0: all right great um so just can do a little bit of a wrap up here uh, if you want to give us just a some final quick final words before we go
1: Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, thank you so much for giving me the ability to come on and speak to you today. And I hope uh, lots of folks get to hear this interview, particularly folks in your age range, Gen Z voters. I hope they know that there's more than just two failed options for them on the ballot uh, next year. And I hope to be at least a third option for them to be able to feel good about voting for. But if you like what you've been hearing today and you want to hear more, Go to the website votechaseoliver.com. You can check out all of our press releases, all of the media hits that we've been doing. Uh, our event calendars. See when we're going to be traveling across the country. You can join our newsletter, become a you know a potential delegate at your state's convention. We want to have you out there and have you involved. You can also become a supporter today if you just have a phone and you want to text Chase to twenty one thousand. You just text Chase to twenty one thousand. We'll get you plugged into the campaign and get you started. Uh, and, uh, you know, last but not least, if you want to find me on social media, go to at Chase for Liberty on all your major platforms. We got on Twitter X. We're on there on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. Uh, we're on YouTube. So find us where you are. Uh, we'd love to have your support. Go ahead and like and subscribe. Do whatever you want to do. Follow us along there on social media. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, remember, You own your life. You own your prosperity. The power resides in you and your community, not in a faraway government in Washington, D.C. Never forget that, that your vote is your voice, and don't be afraid to make it, even if it's outside of the two-party system. Never let people tell you that your voice doesn't matter and that your vote doesn't matter, no matter who it is you're voting for. And again, thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to sign off the way I do every time, because I hope whoever is listening today and you, sir, have a day of peace, love, and uh, liberty.
0: Awesome. So, um, yeah, I just want to, uh, I just want to, yeah. So I just want to say that if you want to support him, go to votechaseoliver.com. That's what you said. Yeah. Um,
1: and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much.